What lies at the intersection between technology and art? Today we go beyond with Piero Scaruffi, a multidimensional expert whose career touches artificial intelligence, music, poetry, the nature of mind, the arts and much more. Writer of influential books and articles like the History of Silicon Valley book, which he co-wrote, he has lectured in three continents and being a visiting scholar at Harvard and Stanford universities. He's also the founder of the Leonardo Art Science Evenings, lasers which take place in more than 30 universities worldwide, including the San Francisco, Stanford and Berkeley ones. His website, scarufi.com, was featured by the New York Times in 2006 in an article titled The Greatest Website of All Time. Let's go beyond at the intersection of technology and art with Piero Scaruffi. Let's go! Go beyond, beyond your horizons. Piero Scaruffi, thank you so much for connecting today. Thank you for having me. How does it feel up there? It feels really exciting because we're going to talk about such fascinating topics with you, uh, starting with artificial intelligence. So I want to know, Piero, uh, all the way from Silicon Valley, where you are, the deep learning revolution, uh, supervised learning, classifying, uh, predicting is working very well. Everybody is wondering what comes next. We have Jan LeCun speaking about self-supervised learning, Jeff Hinton working with capsule networks, Joshua Benjo, <clears throat> uh, all these people trying to combine also uh, from now on the best from symbolic AI, some kind of <clears throat> understanding uh, about the context with uh, the, all the benefits uh, of deep learning. In your opinion, what is the current state of AI, artificial intelligence, and what comes next? Yeah. So the fundamental problem is that machines are still very stupid. Um, you, you think of... Uh, Image recognition, which yes. is the application that made deep learning uh, famous, right? In 2012, um, a system based on deep learning uh, established the record of uh, <clears throat> accuracy in recognizing images. Mm -hmm. uh, that's great, but um, you have to show uh, hundreds or thousands of images of a banana before the neural network yes. can recognize bananas. Now, you show the banana once to a child, and a child understands what a banana is. Mm -hmm. um, we make mistakes, but the way we learn is, is very different. So think of AlphaGo, very famous for learning to play um, the Go game better than the, the, the world champion. Yes. But it had to go through millions of games. I mean, right. you show me how to play AlphaGo in five minutes, I start playing. I will not become a master. Mm -hmm. but the way we humans and any animal, any animal, you know, think of the cat, the dog, think of the worm, whatever. Mm. The way animals learn is, is different. I mean, you show things once and we learn something out of it. So that's the fundamental problem. And that explains a lot of things. You know, that's a, they, they keep saying that machines are more accurate than humans at recognizing um, images. Uh, that's mm -hmm. just not true. Uh, the definition of, uh, of uh, accurate it's very important, you know. <laughs> if I am in a forest and uh, and I think I see a bear, and actually then I, when I get there, I realize it was just a tree. You know, it's a mistake. 
but yes. it's a reasonable mistake. In fact, I claim it's a useful mistake. You mm-hmm. have to be aware that there could be a bear in the forest. Mm-hmm. Now, the mistake that computers make statistically seems to be lower, but they're grotesque. They're ridiculous. You know, yeah. there's, there's a famous um, uh, Google post where they said uh, our machine was so good at recognizing all these uh, um, scenes. And then uh, there's a traffic sign, and the machine said, This is a refrigerator full of food and food. You don't mistake a traffic sign for a refrigerator. Yeah. So yeah, this, this, is, this, is what the, this is what they call advers- adversarial examples. These really stupid things, as you say, that confuse the machines. So, do you think the reason why it's getting confused at these silly things uh, is because the entire paradigm is not the right one, or is something? What, do you, what, what is behind? Well, well, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, different, it's a different thing. Obviously, I mean, if you go down to the neuroscience level, our mm-hmm. neuron and the so-called neuron or the neural network are completely different. I mean, your mm-hmm. neuron, you have billions of neurons and they're all different. There are no two neurons that are identical. Well, that's a good point. So you are telling us in, in artificial intelligence, all the neurons are the same, but in our brains, they are all different. Yeah, I mean, the, the machine eventually is zero and one. Um, and not, not, not only that, the way they communicate is through how many? More than 50 neurotransmitters. I mean, this is like yeah. having 50 neural networks that overlap, you know? And so the level networks. of complexity is much higher in the brain. It's, it's, it's completely different. In fact, I'm not even sure that, uh, that our brain is a network. I think mm. we tend to, we live in the age of networks. Everything is a network, right? Yeah, because yeah, the yeah. And because of what is global trade, a network, everything is that society everything is a network. Is no, it's <laughs> it's like in the in the in the Renaissance, I think they were thinking everything is as fountains. Well, now everything is network. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even so sure that that you know it could be that a century from now people will uh, will look back and say hey, those people in the 21st century were so stupid that they thought that the brain was a network. So. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's just different and that's why my book on ai is titled intelligence is not artificial meaning mm. whatever machines do is different it's something you know like even simple things think of the computer memory it's not yeah. a memory i mean memory as a fundamental proper property it forgets it's not accurate you don't mm. memorize every single pixel of this image that you are seeing our that's brain right. does something different okay that's called, that's memory when you say my computer has a memory of 20 gigabytes, it's false. It's not a memory. It's something else. We just use the same word memory for something different. Yeah, I so see something very interesting here. Do you, do you mean that the accuracy, I mean, the fact that the memory of the machines are storing everything is, is actually a drawback? I mean, is, is, actually, is, is it better to be less precise uh, in a well, way? A, see, it's a different way to... Uh, operate. I mean, uh, our brain is amazingly efficient. You know that our brain consume our brain consumes twenty watts. Wow! I mean, Alpha AlphaGo calculated consumes about four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand watts to yeah. do just one thing. I mean, we can do a lot of things. I can yeah. I can drive. I can run. I can I can argue with uh, with my friends. I can you know about politics. I can do a lot of things with twenty watts. Okay. Yeah, 20 watts. I can walk in the forest and survive with 20 watts. I can walk in a place where I've never been and survive. So our brain is extremely optimized. Any animal's brain is extremely optimized. Very little 
mm. information stored in the brain, but in mm. a way that we can do a lot of things with it. The machine is different. It's very useful because the machine will, uh, will uh, memorize every single pixel, every single bit of the audio, you know, everything, everything, everything. Fantastic. It's a fantastic tool. But when we use a word like memory or intelligence, yeah, machine does something different. You know, it's a different. I always say <coughs> uh, that it's not about superhuman intelligence. It's a different kind of intelligence. Just like uh, a cat has a different kind of intelligence than us. You know, it's a and and uh, so the, so using the same words that we use for human intelligence, I think it's misleading. Now, one great thing that comes with our kind of brain that mm-hmm. doesn't memorize everything, okay? One great thing that comes with it is common sense. Um, and that's what the machines don't have. At the end of the day, that's what machines don't have. Common that's sense. why they need to see. Imagine if you had a child and you have to show a thousand times a banana before this child learns what a banana is. You would yeah. say this child is really stupid. Okay. So, let, so let's focus on this uh, common sense. What is common sense? What is it? What is the root? What is the root of common sense? What I is don't it? know. There's, there's a scientist like uh, Doug Linnat. When I was a kid, Doug Linnat was already studying uh, common sense, 1984. Mm. And I don't think that uh, 40 years later he has the answer. And that's why we don't have intelligent machines, really intelligent machines. That's why yeah. you cannot trust a self-driving car. You know. Yeah. A self-driving car makes no sense because it doesn't have common sense. And there's so many, there's an infinite number of things that can happen on the road in the real world that a machine wouldn't yeah. know what to do. And you have never seen those things, but you would know what to do. Mm. So you would make mistakes. If the traffic light is red, you would mm. make a mistake. In your life, you must have missed at least one red light. Yeah. Now, I, I trust have. that the ma- that the machine, see, I trust that the machine will get to the point they will never miss a red light. But yeah. that's not the point. The point yeah, that's is, not the point. Right. The point is there's a child that, that is not mm. running. The child is crawling on the street. Do you still different see? Shape. Yeah, different shape. Right. If I throw a pillow in front of the self-driving car, does the self-driving car understand it doesn't have to break? Because yeah. if you break really hard for a pillow, you risk, uh, you know, getting injured. Yeah. Right? So there's, machines just don't have, uh, so the self-driving car will, will come if we remove human beings from the city, basically. You know, if you have roads that, where there are only self-driving cars, imagine a city where only self-driving cars are allowed in the streets. Then yes, of course, fantastic. They will know each other. <laughs> they will not need traffic lights. They will not yeah. need to stop. They know exactly when they zoom, you know, pass yeah. each other. Yeah, yeah. But anything that implies common sense, don't use a machine. So, so pretty much because there are actually two groups of people, the people that think that eventually uh, the, the self-driving cars are going to be able to be used on a mass, you know, a massive scale uh, everywhere. And other group that says that, what you say, that because of that lack of common sense, it's just not going to happen for a very, very large amount of time or never. So you pretty much uh, are not betting on that industry to you know, put it together. All so. you have to do is change the definition and everything happens. Uh, so right now, there are self-driving vehicles everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. You use them probably every day in Spain. Trains, they are called trains. Okay. Trains today are robots. Subway trains are robots. And then yeah. millions of people use them. That's a good now, perspective, yeah. How did you solve the problem of the common sense on the train? 
rails. They yeah, you have, have the, the to dedicated run rails. trucks. Yeah. And can humans walk on a rail? No. Uh -huh. yeah. Very simple. Billions of people around the world use self-driving vehicles every day. No problem. So if the self-driving car is, uh, is driving on a road where you have rails, then it's called train. If you don't have rails, well, I don't know, you can have beacons, you can have transmitters that tell the car what to do at every single point of the road. And uh, you can ban people from walking in that street. You can ban children from playing there. Hmm. I don't know how you ban dogs from walking there. But if you can constrain movement so much that the self-driving car basically becomes a train, then yes, you can have a self-driving car. So semantics is important. It's like saying computers have memory. Does, does this computer have a memory? In my opinion, no. But you change the definition of memory and the answer is yes. <laughs> so, I, I really like this. The, the singularity already here? Yeah. yeah, I mean, there are so many animals. I mean, dogs can smell things I cannot smell. So the dog is singularity? You know, I will never be able to smell like a dog. So yeah. <laughs> it's all about definitions. Perspective. It's all about perspective and definitions. Okay, let's go, let's go beyond then. So what if one day, if one day we managed uh, to build a machine that had something similar to human consciousness, uh, such a machine would probably be able to have common sense. Do you think we will ever be able to replicate human consciousness in a machine? Or something completely different. So let's start humble. Let's start uh, with a mouse. Okay. Uh, does a mouse have a consciousness? I think so. Not human consciousness, but it has some level. One, qu one question. Suffer. One question. One question. Uh, where are you in the pamsikism? Pamsikism versus uh, you know, like consciousness, uh, like a fabric in the fabric of the brain versus uh, in the like a general layer property of the universe. Pamsikism. 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 Yeah, yeah. So I'm, 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 I totally believe that. I think consciousness mm -hmm. is a property of everything, and it just expresses itself at different, uh, different degrees. Okay. So you have human okay. consciousness, you have mouse consciousness. I have no idea if this computer has some degree of consciousness, but I think just like uh, electricity, spin, uh, some other properties, I think it's one of the properties. You know? Okay. That's, I think that's the simplest explanation of why consciousness exists. That you know things. Things can have consciousness, and we know the human bodies have consciousness. I personally think also mouse. A mouse is a consciousness. Okay. So your question was, so what if we someday we have a machine that has consciousness? Blah, blah. Well, let's start with things that probably have consciousness. Mouse. Okay. Okay. And by the way, we kill mice all the time. You know, yes. We kill, we kill millions of rats every single day, and we don't seem to feel particularly sorry about that. Yeah. By the way, scientists use rats in laboratories because it turns out that the rat is one of the animals that behaves very, very similar to a human being. So, ah, you know, really? That, uh, yeah, it could be that the rat has a consciousness very similar to, to mine and wow. we kill them like a million. So before we start thinking about consciousness of machines, I would like people to focus more on the consciousness of uh, things that probably do have a consciousness, which is animals, you know, that uh, I read mm -hmm. a statistic that every year humans uh, kill 60 billion uh, animals. Wow. Yeah, before we start worrying about the consciousness. 60 billion? Billion, yeah. So every, every human being basically kills almost uh, eight uh, um, animals uh, uh, a year. 
thought that, you know, before we start killing and thinking about the consciousness of machines, maybe we should start thinking about the consciousness of uh, house and... Uh, yeah, that's and, a great uh, point. That's a great point because, because the, the more I interact with animals, the more I get the feeling that they have a consciousness. Now, a question is if consciousness will be, as you say, like a gradual thing uh, with different degrees of consciousness or maybe just ev everything has consciousness. Um, so, that, I mean, it's like asking, does everything have uh, spin? Uh, does everything have electricity? Does everything has... Uh, yeah. have, uh, so all of these things come in degrees. And, uh, you know, I mean, that your, your kitchen table has zero electricity. So there might be things that have zero consciousness. I, I don't know. This, here we are really speculating, you know. Yeah, totally. And by the way, by yeah. the way, in my book, I mentioned the fact that the, the, there could be other things that we don't have. There could be something out there that some things have a property that they have and humans don't have. No, we think consciousness is so special. Yeah. But what about there is also uh, umbrellaism, and it's something that, that only umbrellas have, you know? <laughs> I like that. So, so we so think consciousness, be... so higher levels of consciousness are so important, so important. But how about umbrellaness? You know? <laughs> I like that. There could be other ways of experiencing the world that are just as interesting and valid as our consciousness, but they are completely different, right? Yeah, it's different, literally different kinds of existence that we, we cannot experience because we are limited. I mean, we are limited. Humans are limited in many ways, even in terms of consciousness. You know? Maybe like oh. the book Flatland, uh, you should write uh, Umbrella Land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I like it. Okay, so now back to artificial intelligence. Uh, so, okay, uh, you left it clear that uh, machines have, and it's true, they have the silly issues still. Now, in the next decade, in this decade that we are beginning, um, what do you think AI and artificial intelligence, um, how will it best help humans and the world? Uh, how can we best utilize it um, to, you know, improve our lives? What do you think? What is it going to Yeah, so first, so now, now let me, <coughs> so... I started by being pessimistic because I want people to yeah. have to have an idea where we really are. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> now let me talk about the positive side. Okay. Um, I think uh, 2014, about 2014, when uh, they started inviting me to speak about AI, I had a, a slide at the end mm -hmm. that was my hope. My hope is that very soon we'll have machines that can. Uh, Uh, help doctors. They can look at uh, X-rays. They can look at mm. uh, you know image of your lungs, of your cheek, or whatever, and help specialists diagnose diseases. Yeah. Well, it's reality. Yeah. It's okay. This exists. Yeah. So, so the so AI is already useful in a, in a, in ways that uh, just six years ago I was hoping. You know, I didn't see it coming. I think the first one that came was almost exactly one year later. Now, going forward, so that already tells you that, that, that even years ago, um, I thought that medicine was the field where AI can really help. Mm -hmm. um, and why? Well, it's very simple, because that's, that's the place where people still die. <clears throat> We don't have cures for so many things. Now, now today, even without the epidemic, um, I would, in fact, last year, uh, two years ago, 2018, I was in China talking at a conference, the biotech conference, and my slides were mostly on how can AI help develop drugs, not 
not that kind of drugs. Yeah, I'm of talking course. about medicine. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how can AI help develop drugs? Why? Because many things. So somebody at Stanford told me, I'm studying this gene, and uh, there are 70,000 papers on this wow. gene. Wow. Published in scientific journals. I mean, peer reviewed. 70,000 papers? 70, papers about that gene, yeah? Well, one, gene, one gene, okay. Yeah. Then I checked, and uh, that year, I think it was 2017, um, number of papers published in all the life, si life science magazines, 2.5 million. <laughs> I mean, who's going to read? Two point, I mean, think, think of the age of Galileo, where you would read one book a month, maybe one <laughs> book a year. Yeah. And now, in 2.5, only life sciences. So just, uh, just figuring wow. out what they have discovered, what the rest of the world discovered. And it's, it's a huge project. This is a one. great point. This is a great point. Just the <clears> amount <throat> of information, uh, nobody's going to read all, all this stuff. Yeah. yeah, this is scientific information. It's not Fox News. You know, it's not, it's not just yeah. gossip. It's information. So then the second point is that if you come up, so coming up with the idea for a new <clears throat> drug, uh, of, in general in science, for a new invention, takes a lot of work, uh, you know, using the brain to do a lot of things and uh, yeah. intuition, uh, you know, reasoning by analogy, uh, curiosity, you have to try different things and so on. Then uh, you finally have the drug. You said, oh my God, I found the cure for this disease. Mm -hmm. You know how long it takes? How long it takes to make it, to test it, to come, in, to, come to the market? between five and 10 years. Wow. In those wow. five and 10 years, thousands, maybe millions of people die. Yeah. You know? I mean, by the way, people talk about this uh, COVID epidemic. I mean, we have 1 million people dying every year of malaria. Yes, yeah. wow. Just, yeah. I mean, we still have ridiculous uh, amounts, ridiculous problems we haven't solved. So, yeah. so AI could definitely help. It will not come up with a, with a solution, but it can help um, in can help scientists come up with hypotheses, you know. Very interesting. Study the literature. So you say in the discovery part of the process, the, the beginning part, right? But the discovery part, it can come up with a hypothesis, mm. and then by using robots, robotic labs, yeah, uh, we can, we can speed up uh, the development. Like now, 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 this is another case where we don't have a vaccine. It happened before. People tend people have a short memory. Yeah, I mean, Ebola didn't kill millions yeah. of people because luckily it always happens in places where people don't travel much, mm. you know. But if Ebola, if, if Ebola, if Ebola shows up in uh, Paris or New York, you mm. will have millions of people dead because Ebola yeah. is, is really a killer. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and so, by the way, there are four different kinds of Ebola and we have wow. a vaccine that works for one and not for the others. So even that. Why does it take so long? So is it possible that a, a, a robotic lab, we put it in a basement in some safe place, okay? Just yeah. robots. And uh, they produce vaccines for imaginary diseases. Maybe oh. we have to put also a few artists there, you know, to come up yeah. with you know, the science of imaginary diseases. And they produce all these diseases all the time and the machines come up with the vaccine, okay? And oh. then, uh, then they work 24 hours a day, uh, non-stop, and this lab is big, there's hundreds of robots, 
and they keep producing vaccines for diseases that don't exist. The next one that comes up, the next uh, epidemic that comes up, yeah, yeah. we ask these robots, hey, do you have a vaccine for this one? And chances <laughs> are that the robots will say, well, we have something very similar. Try this one. Okay? That's very interesting. I, I really like this just, just for the audience, right? I mean, we're almost talking about like, like factories of robots that are inventing, maybe like with the generative adversarial networks with guns, they are inventing diseases and then creating vaccines for those diseases uh, to have like a repository of uh, possibilities that then they can match when a real one happens. This is really this is a good yeah. argument for a movie also, Piero. Yeah, we, no, also for a, for a story. Remember Borges? Yeah. The great yes, writer Borges, the yes. library, the Borges, the library that has produces all the possible books ever all the written. Books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I want the same thing. I mean, it's feasible, right? Today, AI could do that. Could gen but, combinatorially. But one question. One mm -hmm. question. What is the complexity of this? Because I know there are some problems whose complexity is uh, so large that uh, you could have more possibilities than the number of atoms in the universe. So could this be one of those? I mean, could we constrain basically? Could we constrain the possibilities when they invent this stuff? Yeah, sure. I mean, you can. I mean, this, this, these are machines. You can. Yeah, they you can, can decide. You you can design them whichever way. But this, to me, is something practical, feasible, feasible yeah, today. I like it. I you like know, and, it. And, and you keep upgrading the software. I mean, AI engineers can keep coming up with better and better ways uh, to read text yes. and. Uh, you know, and, and so so this thing gets more and more efficient. And uh, every year we 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 produce one million vaccines. You know, nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine are useless. Still, the one that is useful, yeah, is going to avoid the big problem we have now. This is this. I like it a lot. This could be working already, uh, taking precautions uh, before anything happens. Yeah, yeah. And and when you said uh, mix it well, you know, the the because. It's very exciting because you have a lot of interesting views that combine art and the artistic fields with the technology and with AI and all of this. So, for example, this is an example of uh, being creative, like inventing something, and then also the, the, the AI and the technology part. Um, are we going to see more and more examples uh, coming up of technology combining with creativity in exciting ways like this, useful ways? Well, it's, uh, I mean, again, it's, uh, I mean, technology that helps humans be creative or humans that uh, tell machines uh, what kind of creativity we need. Also, that's, that's, that's always the same problem. So now if you ask me, you should also ask me to say something to prove that I know what's going on in AI. So, for example, I know that uh, Google demonstrated this uh, robotic dog that huh. uh, imitates animals. By the way, this is when Google does it, everybody talks about it. I mean, uh, Sergey Levine has been doing these things at UC Berkeley for at least two, three years. I haven't so, seen this you know, one. So it's a robotic dog that imitates other animals? It imitates a dog, a real dog. So it learns by, by, by looking at what the dog does, how the dog moves. Huh. Now, now, that's very important. Very, very, and it could be useful to create robots that, that are more useful than the ones we have now in the factories. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other one, um, recent news, uh, really very recent, uh, Agent 57. Uh, without this epidemic, people will be talking about Agent 57. What is so Agent 57? It's the grandchild of AlphaGo. It can play all oh. 57 Atari games. All oh. of them. So th these are all impressive things. But I 
feel that are kind of useless. You know, this, okay, you prove the point. Now, how do we use it to do something that is really creative? Yeah, with, with the reinforcement learning, a lot of people are asking this. How can we translate this AlphaGo, all the reinforcement learning successes into yeah, something so, practical? So, that, so, that, so that's where you need the, the real creativity is in really figuring out, okay, this, is, this Agent 57 can play a lot of games. Interesting. Now, is there, is there something in real life that feels like a game and we can use this... Uh, this uh, there is... Uh, I don't know if you know about in silico uh, medicine, in silico yeah. medicine, a company in the United States, they, they are combining uh, GANs, generative adversarial networks, with reinforcement learning and uh, with the same strategy of AlphaGo to uh, design... And new molecules for medicines. Yeah. This, yeah, and, yeah, and this yeah. is, uh, you know, they, they, they've they've had a few papers uh, uh, positively reviewed. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and uh, by the way, you also see it in uh, in venture venture capital. I mean, there's very little venture capital actually in AI now. There was really? a big investment years ago by by the, the Japanese billionaire. But if you remove that, there, actually there isn't much. Why? Wow. Well, Agent, wow. Agent 57 can play 57 Atari games, okay, but how much value is it is it creating? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you, you have need... to find a way that this creates value in uh, real things. By yeah. the way, talking about, again, also to give some positive message here, talking about, uh, uh, you know, AI that can read uh, thousands of papers. Uh, that's, I said, that's feasible today. To some extent, it's coming. I mean, this is this is where the real progress is. I don't know if you if you heard of uh, uh, systems like uh, Elmo, Bert. Yes. GPT. Okay. So this GPT. These are systems that are getting are getting better and better at reading a text yeah. and understanding what's inside, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. So the, this uh, this is um, very interesting, especially when you combine it uh, with. Uh, with other technologies. So that there's a branch of AI that doesn't have a name yet. Um, I call it theory formation. And actually it was around from the beginning. You theory know, the idea that a machine comes up with a theory. You give oh. machine, originally, originally it was data. I give machines data and the machine has to come up with a, with a theory that explains the data. Huh. So, you know, you know enough, you know induction and all these uh, yeah. things. And uh, well, today is about text. I give the machine text, and now give me a theory. Tell me something that comes out of this, uh, yeah. all this text. Uh, so, for example, um, the, the, I find it uh, Allen Institute, the Allen Institute in Seattle. It's interesting mm -hmm. that they are creating this library CORD. CORD stands for COVID Open. COVID opens COVID up. Opens anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a collection of thousands of papers published on COVID. And they mm. put it out there, open source, and they're told, and they, and they give a prize to anybody who can build an AI system that does something meaningful with this. Well, that's the right way to go. That's the right way to go. Let's see what they come up with, you know? Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, it, it would be a dream uh, to be able to interpret and read uh, and get something useful from, from all these uh, texts. Yeah, I don't know what level of comprehension, but I think I, think I saw recently a, a Google article or paper talking about uh, you don't really need to understand properly the text completely 
in order to create good connections uh, with the information. Not yeah. So that right now, what you have it's uh, competitions like Squad, where mm -hmm. that the machine has to answer a question. So you read the text that is about I don't know China-U.S. relations, and then you mm -hmm. ask the question, who is the president of China? And the text yeah. has to be not really priced CGP. So they're getting very good at this. Uh, is this enough uh, to come up with a scientific theory? Of course not. Yeah. Of course not. But not you have to yet. start somewhere. You have to start yeah. somewhere. We have to start so somewhere. It, and, and as you said, you can make connections. You can make connections between two texts. You know, this text says something about this gene. This text says something very similar about the same gene. No. Yeah, put it together. Or just write it. Write it. Write it down for me. Yeah. You know, write I it mean, down. I mean, there are I two get, papers. Uh, I guess there is so much information that even just creating good connections would be super helpful because nobody has time. I just hate to look at everything. Absolutely. Right on target. Exactly. Just give me that. You already helped me a lot. You basically saved me months of research in the library. Yeah. Okay, great. Very exciting. Now let's, let's link with the arts now, with the arts, because I love all your perspectives about art. In, in this world of technology and artificial intelligence and generative adversarial networks, guns, and everything, what's going to happen with art, with artists? Is art going to change in a, in a, in a like, like critical, uh, important way? Uh, what is the art coming in the next decade? What, what, what's the yeah. status of art? What's coming out? So maybe maybe give, your, give your speakers a background. Why are you asking me? Yeah. I have a background in math and AI. Yes. Years ago, 2008, I started the Leonardo Art Science Evening Rendezvous Laser. Yep. And now they take I'm place. A big fan. In, uh, I'm a big fan. Yeah, they, now they take place in more than 40 universities uh, all over the world. Mm -hmm. Not in Spain, huh? No, not yet. We, we uh, gotta come uh, here, my friend. Anyway, in uh, anyway, I don't live. In, I live in Mars. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we even have lasers in uh, Iran, Brazil. So time, time to have them in, in Spain. We don't have them in Italy, my home country. Oh. No good. So the, these are events where I put together artists and scientists. You know, yeah. I force uh, scientists to listen to artists and first force artists to listen to scientists. And then in 2014, uh, I started the, the LAST festival. Uh, LAST stands for Life, Art, Science, Technology. Yes. So I've always been a strong believer in uh, the importance of uh, art and music uh, mm -hmm. in general for I mean, human civilization. I mean, human civilization didn't start with Einstein. It started with uh, people telling stories and uh, singing songs. Um, and then very important also for, uh, you know, for progress. I mean, Silicon Valley, I wrote a big book on Silicon Valley. Yeah. Because... Okay, I'll take a little detour before I answer your question. But your yeah. question is interesting, so I don't want to lose it. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote a big book, which now the new edition is like 700 pages. Good. The history of Silicon Valley. Um, one day, my friend Aruna told me, why, why don't we write a book on Silicon Valley? And I said, that's a boring idea. And then uh, I started thinking about it. <clears throat> and uh, all the history of Silicon Valley obviously missed something. Because... Mm. Because the starting point, you know, if you go back to 1950, even 1960, even 1970, the microprocessor is invented in 71. So, and you ask, and you ask anybody in New York what is special about the Bay Area, they would never answer technology. There's no way. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the technology 
So the money was in London and New York. The brains, the great scientists were all on the East Coast in Europe. Nobel mm-hmm. Prize winners, all East Coast and Europe. Uh, the big electronic companies, IBM, General Motors, AT&T, you name it, all the great inventions, East Coast and Europe, Philips, Siemens, and so on. Um, so the computer was invented in Cambridge. The, the transistor was invented in New Jersey. The internet was uh, set up originally in Boston. And I, it was, I mean, California doesn't, doesn't enter the picture. I think by 1960, they had the whole of California, two Nobel Prize winners, something like that. So what was special about the Bay Area? If you ask what somebody was? in New York, so, eh, they will tell you, oh, it's a, it's a place for crazy artists and crazy musicians, uh, crazy philosophers, crazy mm-hmm. politicians. That's what the Bay Area was famous for. Oh, interesting. So, so, the, so if you want to write a history of Silicon Valley, you have to write a cultural history of the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Then everything makes sense suddenly. You know, suddenly it makes sense that the, the, the technology comes to the Bay Area by accident because of the Cold War, before that, because World War II, but then the Cold War. Is really and, and the Bay Area hijacks technology, totally hijacks it, you know. I, I, track, I track back when the Unix operating system came to the Bay Area, it became the first open source uh, rep, uh, repository, and the news groups of the Unix operating system became... Uh, equivalent of social media uh, where people were exchanging news about uh, you know crazy rock concert there's a yeah. later there's a rave in a, there's a party in the basement and so on um, and people people just were thinking different it was so easy to come up with the with the apple computer here so easy you know 1970 i have a picture of zero spark a meeting those crazy people you know them you know they, they all look like hippies long hair they're yeah. sitting on the floor. You know, those people in 1970 were discussing, I want a computer on a desk. Now, focus. 1970, a computer was as big as a three-story building in a, in a, in a city. Yeah. It was gigantic. It was an incredible, stupid idea. I want a computer on a desk. And you know for what? Schools. They wanted to give it to school children. It was yes. totally crazy. Yeah. You know? Now, IBM on the East Coast or Philips in Europe, they had the engineers, the money, everything to do this. But they didn't have the crazy idea to start mm. with. Okay? So somebody had the crazy idea. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of Steve Jobs, as you probably know, but in 1995, uh, I saw recently an interview, it's on YouTube, where they asked him about the Macintosh. And he says the reason the Macintosh was a, such a great machine is because of uh, artists and musicians. It doesn't say it's because of my chief engineer. <laughs> so, very, very good. Very, so, very so interesting. That's, that's always been so important. And, you know, the idea of the garage. I have, a, I have, a, I have a good. Uh, I have a. Can I just interrupt for for a second to ask you because this is super interesting. That is the crazy ideas, the artists, the, the musicians, the philosophers that are behind this question. Why is it like in Europe? We, in Europe, we we've always had great artists and musicians and philosophers. Uh, why didn't we manage to get something like Silicon Valley here? Uh, so it must be a combination of that and something else, maybe. Or why 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 didn't well, we do the same here? Well, that's a very good question. Of course, it's it's a very good question. Also, from somebody in New York, the point is that the Bay Area didn't have the greatest; it had mm. the craziest. 
The so, greatest. I mean, like you, if you ask me, who's the greatest painter of the Bay Area? I have no idea. I don't think there is one that, that I want to see. But the greatest. The, you know, John Cage learned from somebody named Harry Cowell, who was here in San Francisco. Harry Cowell was all about using noise and using random events to make music. Yeah. So it was crazy. Now, John Cage moves to the East Coast and becomes sort of institutionalized. It becomes a movement. It becomes mm-hmm. a school. So Europe is about the museums. It's about uh, mm. all the ism. You know, you have impressionism yeah. and futurism, uh, which are great, which are great. They're, they're very important in the history of culture. But I think it's different from the Bay Area where you almost want to be poor and marginalized and uh, misunderstood. It's almost a goal, you know? I so, love this. I, I really love this so, perspective. I mean, it, it is really the, the out-of-the-box, uh, the, the garage thing. Let's have the minimum possible. Let's just yeah, focus so, so, on the crazy ideas. Yeah, if somebody asks you, who was the greatest hippie? I have no idea. They were hippies. You know, it was a way of living. It wasn't about, I'm the greatest. I'm going to give a talk about the hippie-dome. Hippies yeah. doesn't exist, you know? And the Burning Man Festival now is becoming a little institutionalized. But, you know, that's another thing that started because it started on the beach in San Francisco. They, they kicked them out of the beach. And my friend John Law offered, how about you come with us to the desert? We do it in the desert. And yeah. said, Who is the greatest Burning Man uh, person? doesn't exist i mean it's it's not about you know what i mean it's, it's so anarchic it's just a feeling so it's and, not uh, about also the individual persons necessarily it's more about the style of life lifestyle almost yeah it's it's many things it's a mindset you know we keep saying that is a mindset yeah the bay area was a mindset this is that's, very that's very interesting because you know this question of <laughs> what is the secret of silicon valley what is it, the, so many people around the planet are yeah are and, and i also it. think see one component that is important is also the the role of the government uh-huh. now the government is very powerful on the east coast very powerful in europe but was very weak in california uh-huh. So the role of the government is to stay out of the way. And uh, in California, this was easy to achieve. Mm. It was easy to be anti-corporate, anti-government, anti-this, anti-that. It was easy. There was no big corporation here. Mm. You know, it was easy. And so you could... The, 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 I mean, this uh, is a good point. So you are telling us that in a way, too much structure, too much regulation, too much control can be an obstacle to create something like Silicon Valley at the okay, beginning. So, Yes, very important. Yes, the answer is yes, but I want to be precise because in my book, mm. uh, I mentioned Japan as another place where they had a lot of creativity and came yeah. up with great inventions. You know, yeah. if, if, I mean, it's number two. I mean, they invented a lot of things from the CD, DVD, flash memory, you know, so, so many, you know, hybrid car. Um, Japan is totally different from Silicon Valley. So Silicon mm. Valley is not the only model. Yeah. Okay? Not the only model works. There are others, and of course, I mean, it's, China, like, it's like the umbrellaness oh, of before. Yeah. <laughs> Even China, China, they keep inviting me to talk about Silicon Valley in China, but they have the, the exact opposite. Well, they went from starvation to being uh, the number two, maybe number one economy in the world. So yeah. there are other models, mm. but you cannot have Silicon Valley without the crazy artists and crazy musicians. That's that's in a nutshell. That's my seven mm. hundred page book. That's what uh, I claim. So. Anyway, so when I do the lasers and the last festival, I'm just part of a history of uh, of uh, the Bay Area. 
know that uh, and you know you see these things over and over again and uh, you know the the Bay Area didn't even have computers. In 1963, the first exhibition of computer art was in San Jose, which now is you know, Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the recently, there's been articles in um, uh, MIT Technology Review about Xenobots. Well, the first one to have a, a Xenobot was actually an artist, Carl Sims. Google him. Wait, wait, wait. what is an Xenobot? Xenobots. X-E-N-O-Bot. Okay, yeah, yeah, Xenobots, yeah. And um, there's a lot of engineers that started, you know, building guns, neural networks that make art. Yeah. Uh, cool. But it took an artist, Tom White, to make, use a neural network, to make art, take uh -huh. the art and feed it into another neural network to see what the other neural network thinks. And so he claims that he has neural networks that appreciate the art made by other neural networks. Huh. So neural net is not AI uh, by machines. Is it AI? Is art AI art for AI machines? Yeah. You know, that's interesting. So, that's interesting. Then go. <clears throat> so art is useful to generate this kind of thing. Now, let me tell you one mm -hmm. one thing that uh, it's. Uh, no, the, the, the original question was uh, how is art going to change uh, because of this uh, pandemic? So first of all, I think we don't have one crisis. We have uh, three crises um, that are happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the pandemic, which is a natural uh, <clears throat> uh, disaster. But then think of all these populists, uh, you know, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, Brexit, mm. then you have Bolsonaro in Brazil and so on. That's a crisis. That's a big crisis. Mm -hmm. is, this, is this one question? This type of populist populism, is it a, a, a new thing or has it happened throughout history many times or um, is this different to uh, all, all, all of these things, all of these things happened before, but of course, history repeats itself in many ways, yeah. uh, but in different, uh, different forms. So one one crisis that is the COVID is very obvious. One is the populist, and we forgot a little bit, but those are scary. I mean, those are those could lead to the Hitler Mussolini kind of world. Mm -hmm. And the third one is a uh, data, big data. I mean, everybody's worried about privacy. Mm. You cannot browse a website without seeing. Oh, we use cookies to improve your experience. This, this is the the, the grotesque, hypocritical, hypocritical statement of, of, uh, of our age, you know? Yeah. Why do you have to use cookies? No, I don't want you to use cookies. I don't want you to <laughs> improve my experience. So we have three crises well, at this interview has no cookies, okay. Yeah, so one is the data thing that has begun dystopian. Uh, the other one, and don't blame it on AI, AI comes after. And the other one is the political crisis, and then you have COVID. So I, I see this as, uh, really scary convergence of uh, bad things. All right. Now, what do the arts do when there is a massive crisis? It's so intriguing. Dada, you know Dada. Dada was born in the middle of the Spanish flu that I in World War I. Uh -huh. Okay? So there was this insanity and Dada was born. Okay, then please tell, tell the audience about Dada a bit for people that don't... The, the yeah, Dada, Dada was... Uh, was uh, cultural movement, not just art. Okay. It was a, you know, it was a movement of people who were very provocative okay. and uh, they were going against uh, the dogmas. 
uh, okay. in, in everything, you know. You know, Duchamp's uh, toilet is still the, still the most famous, uh, the, uh, Duchamp's uh, urinal, still the most famous artifact, but you know, it's, there were mm -hmm. uh, exhibitions, there were performances, and they invented a lot of what now has become serious art. Mm -hmm. Then uh, World War II, in the middle of World War II, and so actually right after, let's not talk, World War II was a war, but think of Hiroshima. Hiroshima and the Holocaust, uh, you know, the concentration camps. And then at the same time, they had the, the polio epidemics, uh, a lot of famous, uh, you know, mm -hmm. victims of the epidemics. Right after this, when the world is still trying to recover from the shock of these massive things, you have theater of the absurd. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and by the way, during World War II, existentialism, uh, bebop were born. Uh, or think of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. That's yes. the golden age of punk rock. Punk rock. It's a music that does this. Bang, bang, bang. Yeah, yeah. So after after big crises, it's like new artistic movements are born. Yeah, and um, the, the, during the Islamic terrorism, I noticed the boom of stencil art. Stencil. So, yeah, so this, I think the, the arts usually... There's a shock wave that reaches the artists and the musicians, and, and they have to express <coughs> uh, themselves. Somehow. Right. So, so I don't want to sound rude and cruel, but you should be excited about this epidemic, and this uh, wave of populism, and the and the crisis of data, because I think artists and and the musician will come up with something creative out of this. You know, somehow the arts needed these shock waves huh. to. Otherwise, they tend to be complacent. They tend to say, okay, this is art and I'm going to do the same thing. Okay? This is very interesting. So huh? you think that great art is, is born uh, of, of big, of impactful uh, eras and, and events? I mean, a big art can be born anytime, but, uh, but there's new kind of art, a real paradigm shift. Paradigm, paradigm shift. shift. Yeah. Very often happens... I mean, even if you think of the of the Renaissance, everybody talks about the Italian Renaissance, and they they forget the historical context. It, it was born in Italy, of all places, yeah. which in those days didn't exist. There was a bunch of uh, states uh, fighting each other all the time, invaded by this by by, by all sorts of uh, other armies. And right after the Black Death. Right after the plague, the plague was 14th century, and then 15th century, the Italian humanists and then, uh, and then Leonardo and everybody else comes. I mean, of course, in those days, it took a century for things to happen. But if you think of it, it happened in Italy. There was the epicenter of the, of the Black Death, and it happened yeah. one century after. So. <clears throat> so, you know, so we are thinking of doing the last festival online. It was supposed to, the last festival 2020 was supposed to take place mm -hmm. in San Jose, uh, of course, postponed. And then we started thinking, let's do it online. But I don't want, see, we're, we're living in the, in the era of the online experience, like you and me right now. Yeah. But I don't want art, an online exhibition that simply shows, oh, this is the painting. This is another painting. Yeah, so another... maybe people will have to come up with new forms of blending art with all of the remote online stuff, yeah? Exactly. I was looking. Let me, let me see. Let me browse 
for a second. And I, I, I also want you to tell us something about music because, you know, music is, is a bit like mathematics and a lot of people are starting to use artificial intelligence to produce a music in the style of Bach or other famous composers that are very, very, very realistic. What's going to happen with music uh, when we have both AI composers that are really, really good? Because it's going to happen because it's coming very fast. Uh, and even even interpreters, you know, what's going to happen with music? What's happening with music? So, so let's start with the with the first point. If you Javier send me a piece of music that sounds like Bach, you know, I rate music between zero and ten. You send yeah. a piece of music that sounds like Bach, rating two out of ten. I heard this before. <laughs> I heard it a thousand times. Yes. So it's a very low point. <laughs> okay. You know, very low. Just okay, imitating what would somebody. Be, what would be impressive for you? What would be? What would, would you say? Wow! If you saw it uh, made by something, something I haven't heard before. Something that I see. If I can tell you, then by definition, it's not great music. If okay. I can tell you what it is, it's not great music. I mean, when when Beethoven uh, made, especially his last sonatas, you know, nobody heard that kind of thing before. Mm. So so that's 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 great. Uh, music. Okay, this so, is but this, this is a great point because. Uh, wait, wait, there is something very deep here because uh, just as the reinforcement learning people are trying to play games that have already been played before and the people in music in AI are trying to imitate styles that have already been done before, you are almost telling us that, hey, this is all nice, but what's the point? I mean, where is the new stuff? I mean, when are we going to see, I mean, what is really wow is, is when, when, we're going to, when we're going to see new Completely new stuff being created that blow us away. You know? That is like, is that right? Yeah. And so that's one point, but it's not the only one. But the other okay. thing, there's uh, something in uh, music and art uh, literature that's about the human experience. You know, uh, I mean, we are humans, so we judge art based on the uh, human experience. So why punk rock is great? Of course, the punk rockers were not Bach. They were not Beethoven. They were mm -hmm. very limited. But there was something in the visceral, furious anger, you know, there's something about the human condition that yeah. you cannot express in words, otherwise you wouldn't do it in music. So, so that part also has to be there. It has to be something. One day they interviewed Bob Dylan about uh, music. Uh, I mean, what's the secret? And he just said, it has to come from the heart. <laughs> that's it. Come from the heart, and that's it. Now, this is a really interesting part right now. I mean, what is good music? You know, you know, the, the, like, like the critics of music. I mean, how do you evaluate music? Yeah, so there's, there's many factors. I mean, also the technical skills are important. Some music, you just marvel at the, yeah. the skills of the musician. But even the skills, I mean, it's not a lot about pressing a key, you know, pianist. He's pressing the key 3,000 times a second. That doesn't make you a great pianist. Yeah. In fact, there's a, there's a great performance of a Beethoven sonata, I think by Barham one, where he plays it very slow. Mm -hmm. And you start thinking, you don't have to be a great pianist. You don't have to be lang lang to play that way. It's very slow. Ding, ding. Why nobody has thought of doing that? Playing that sonata very, very, very slow <laughs> with no, almost no skills. And it comes out absolutely beautiful. By the way, then a pianist explained to me that it's actually sometimes more difficult because to keep the tempo when you play fast, true, it's sometimes true. it's easier than you keep the tempo when the tempo when you play very slow and the distance between the notes increases. But you know, 
That is that is true. So, I'm, I'm, my personal so, experience is that uh, yeah, no, no, it's what you say that that technical skill in piano or, or anything else. Mm. Uh, you know, you can have the, the most technically gifted uh, performer, so, but but if it doesn't have the emotional side, something is missing. So that so we are talking about very soon we'll have books that say a history of art for humans, because if you write a history of art for cats, it's going to be difficult. Different. <laughs> if you write a history of art <clears throat> for a computer, it's going I to like be that. Different, I like right. That. But a history of art for humans. Yeah. That will be written by humans based on, on the impact of that art on a human being. And each of yeah. us can write a completely different history. I mean, I know people who hate Beethoven sonatas. And, and, and a lot of people hate uh, the music I, I like. So, <clears throat> so it's also, you know, that's, that's uh, even art. I mean, some of the most beautiful art I've seen in the world was made by birds, by, by spiders. Birds. Oh my God, yeah. I took a picture <clears throat> some exotic country. I remember it was this big spider that's why i stopped because i was about to hit the big spider <laughs> then i realized this spider web and maybe it was sunset there was <clears throat> something about the sun hitting the spider web mm -hmm. i've never seen a painting so beautiful you know it's very very nice can i put it in a history of art i mean a spider sp25 that's in, a great point that's in 2005, I like something very nice of, of what you said that I've never heard before. That is like not only we are making art, but nature, the animals, uh, the computers, they are all making art as well. And we may be blind to this. Yeah, and, uh, and random people, you know, when, uh, when you walk on the, on the mountains in California, mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's a huge area of the Sierra that is uh, <clears throat> uncivilized. And what we hikers do, we leave, uh, we call them cairns. We leave, you know, two, three stones on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And that's to say, I was here, I was going there. This is a route that takes me there. If I uh -huh. fail, I remove the stones, okay? okay? So we're building trails in a sense, right? Trails, yeah. Well, guess what? One day I was hiking um, to Baxter Pass, going down to some lakes. And this guy, this guy has created the most... <laughs> creative incredible cairns i've ever seen putting not three stones which is already difficult but putting uh -huh. like 20 stones 20 wow. stones on top of each other Very creating cool. these amazing things and when i saw the first one i saw wow my, my, my god this guy spent a lot of time just doing this he must have had a picnic there and there was another one and another one and another one wow. for two or three hours I, is this art this was amazing you know this was art in the forest made with stones by somebody who is amazingly good at figuring out how to balance stones. You know? Very interesting. So is, so, the, is this art? So we, we need to define art. So how do you define art? So that we I see what... I don't. Yeah. <laughs> you don't? Art, art, first of all, is useless. Second, it can, art is what, it cannot, what cannot be defined. Art is what cannot be defined. <clears throat> and I say useless because there's too many artists today who give you a lecture when, yeah. when you go and see their art they go this piece of art is about the da 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 it has yeah. the whole theory behind it yeah. if i want to if i want to hear a lecture on politics or sociology i i, I you know i i, I have great sen uh, political scientists and sociologists at stanford so that's uh -huh. why i always say art has to be useless first of all tell me this piece of art is useless then let me decide why it's useful for the history of humankind. 
that's very interesting. Uh, useless, something that is something that is useless that cannot be defined, and I, that I guess we each interpret as we as we feel like, as we like, or 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 that it triggers something completely different in each. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if it's, it's I mean, seriously, if it's useful, then it's not art; it's sociology. I mean, if you think that your piece of art is useful to explain a sociological problem, then it's not art; it's sociology, which is fine. It's very useful. Interesting. It's very useful. Okay, I'm yeah. not so useful. Is not an insult. It's useful, but it's not art. Sociology. Okay. And what is and what is what is you know the role of art in society? The role of art in society is, is it changing? Is it going to change? What, 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 what is that role and what is going to be that role in the future? What do you think? Well, you can you can ask it also in past tense. What has been the role of art in society? Yes. Okay. And I think it just. I mean, at the basic level, is to make us think, make us think and rethink. Mm. You know, we. We we were as I said we were planning we are planning this online exhibition. So what do we want artists to do? And then somebody said we want artists to think about the current situation. And I said, how about we want artists to rethink? Because everybody's thinking. I mean, we have scientists, we have sociologists, we have politicians. Everybody's thinking. Everybody's thinking. How about we want we want artists to rethink? <laughs> because because just thinking sounds boring. So the with artists do, so give it give it a, give it a turn it around yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so no what's what has been the role of uh, art in history that's that's a good question it's a complicated question you know if you go yeah. back enough uh, enough years you have art you don't have science you have you have the caves in Lascaux why those cavemen felt the urge to paint what did they paint bisons I remember which animals yeah probably why did they feel and uh, was it uh, my question is always was it the adults or was it the children because children mm-hmm. are the first artists <clears throat> so you know I, I mean what's the neurological what's the what does neuroscience says about art why do you feel that you have to write a poem how, how does the poem help you so it's many questions that don't have an answer yet but uh, it's part of the human uh, of the human uh, being and you have to wonder see even when i listen to a bird in my backyard we always assume the bird is saying something you know mm-hmm. if an animal does something we always assume there's a very specific purpose okay yeah. <clears throat> what if the bird is just enjoying his days and just singing <laughs> because that's a good point so we don't know what the role of art is at, uh, at every level that's very interesting. What if a lot of things uh, that we think have purpose don't really have any purpose, and maybe those purposeless uh, things are are part mm. of this art that is all around us? But I can tell you what I expect. Again, uh, <clears throat> if we do the last festival online, I expect artists to give me something that is not just a picture <clears throat> or a video of their work. Okay, I put you online. If you are an artist. You have to show me something that I don't expect. <clears throat> don't just send me a video. Or if you send me a video, it has to be a video that is very different from the video you would normally send to a gallery. Okay, so this, is very, this, is. Is a, this is very interesting because, again, Piero <clears throat> organizes this last festival where uh, he brings together artists, technologists, and the next edition maybe will be online. And, and, and you're talking about something very, very interesting because from now on, I'm sure this is going to happen very often 
that uh, there will be our, you know art festivals that are going to happen remotely online and then what what is going to be interesting for these festivals and you're saying don't just send me uh, you know a video or i don't know an animation whatever it has to be something of a different nature of a different paradigm to what has been done before or yeah it's not and it's not only me <clears throat> i was looking i was browsing the name of the curator so she's a famous curator and uh, art critic amanda mcdonald crowley and she uh i don't know if it was an email or a tweet somebody sent it to me and it, the title is please no more online exhibitions of offline art ah she interesting she got bored she's a professional and she got bored so i was right it's not only me it's boring it's boring we've done it i mean the met museum so many museums have so many artworks on, online i'm totally in favor of putting more pictures online but that's not an exhibition that's just to save you the the the, the flight the air ticket to go to the museum and see it there definitely it's not an, it's not an online exhibition. The online exhibition has to be something that you cannot experience offline, something really different, you know? Mm. Yeah, no, not an online exhibition yeah. of offline yeah. work. And the, yeah. the number one property of being online is interaction. Yeah. Once you put things online, you have, you have the internet, you have the World Wide Web, you have Facebook, you have... Uh, so the first thing I, I would expect, the art online interacts not only with you, it interacts also with other art. So, you know, it's, I, mean, I expect artists to come up with these things, not me. I'm a dumb <laughs> mathematician. I expect artists to come up. I'm a dumb and boring mathematician. I expect artists to come up with these things. So when an artist tells me, oh, I have, I have a, a piece I cannot uh, show you in person, but I send you a picture. Dude, you, you're not an artist. <laughs> an artist will come up with the idea online, I do this, and uh, if you if you really have to think or rethink about the epidemic, the pandemic, well, give me some post-pandemic art. Don't just show me the you know something that shows the suffering. Uh, I mean, yeah, it has to be something creative. Uh, to give you simple ideas, I mean, there's a student in Texas. He studies with my friend Roger Malina. Uh, he or she, you know. So, um, foreign name uh is doing laptop theater performance using artificial life so, yeah. wait, wait 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 laptop theater performance do you see yeah except the theater the, the theater the theater is done by by not humans by you know avatars uh -huh. and using artificial life okay so that's to me that's computer art you know Interesting. Computer art is not just a painting. Originally, computer art was some drawings on the screen. You know, it has to be something different. It, I give it you has computer. to be a new kind of experience with interactivity. That, I mean, that, that uses the benefits of the media, of the medium. Right. And if you have to think about the current condition, if you have to think about pandemic, for example, don't tell me I analyze this aspect of uh, vaccines. If I want to hear that, I go to a virologist. I have so mm. many here in the Bay Area. If if you're an artist, do something about the ignorance, for example. What this pandemic shows is the pathetic ignorance of, of the human civilization. Okay, It took mm. us months to figure out 
that asymptomatic people can spread it. You know, it yeah. took us three months in the United States to come up with the idea that maybe using masks is not a bad idea. This has been a colossal demonstration of human ignorance. So I expect an artist, if you want to rethink the pandemic, don't tell me what I already know about the pandemic. This is, this is already, already uh, another very interesting thing that you're saying. Artists should not repeat the things that we already know. They should focus on things that we are not aware of uh, in a right. way. Yeah. That's rethinking, right. Tell me something that I don't read in a newspaper every day. Yeah. All right, artists, you listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I love it. I love it, I love it, I love it. And we're approaching towards the end. Piero, I want to ask you something very, very simple that I always love asking. From your point of view, after so many experiences you've had, what is for you the meaning of life? What is for you what gives life purpose? What is the meaning of our existence? Um, I don't know. N nobody knows the answer. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> luckily, we have genes. We have gene Everybody's different genes, and we have genes that, that push us to do things. Yes. People ask me, why do you listen to so much music? Why do you read so many books? You have no idea. Nobody knows how many books I've read. Because if I told you the number, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> why? I don't know. My genes make me do it. So this is, this is, this is I, an important point. How much do you think that you are in charge of your own life and decisions? Yeah, very little, probably. We, we have the illusion. We have the we have so many illusions. You know, there's yeah. a book titled "The Illusion of Knowledge," which is right on target. We are you now there's all these psychological tests that show how ignorant people are. Ignorant people answer, "Do you know why when you press the switch the light goes on?" They say, "Yes, of course." Then you ask them, and they don't know. You know, mm. the illusion of knowledge. We we are so ignorant. And the other illusion, the illusion of being in control of what we do and what we say. And I think the more you analyze, the more you realize you're not. So most likely not. Most likely, so, as I said, the beauty of it is that we don't have the answer, the question, the meaning of life, because the genes make us do it. And if I give an answer, it's one of my genes that is giving the answer. <laughs> This is very interesting. So when, when as a thought, as a thought experiment game, when, when I ask you a question or you ask me a question, we are going to give an answer if we try to interfere with that, with that process consciously in a way that interference itself is part of the conditioning as well, isn't it? Yeah. Even, even the interfering probably comes from some genes. But let me be a little more serious because now I was half serious. Um, this, the part of the ignorance is also that we don't really know what makes you you. You know, there's, there's, uh, we we have this uh, this uh, idea of life as being determined by the DNA, and then more and more biologists are questioning the idea: is it really in the genes? Now check check this guy Anthony Jose. Just, mm -hmm. He just published the. Uh, a paper. In fact, I don't know if it's published. It's, it was circulated uh, preprint, where he okay. basically says something simple. I mean, if you look at the DNA, your DNA doesn't say that you have uh, eyes. It said if you have eyes, they are black. But it doesn't mm -hmm. really say you have eyes. It doesn't mm -hmm. really say that the eyes are in the head. That's There's the information in the DNA that we never found about the organism. 
So we don't even know what exactly drives us. Okay. So this is very interesting. So the DNA says the the, the features of, of of what we have, but not that we should have this. Yeah. Our, yeah. yeah. I think in his in his paper he calls it a list of ingredients. Well, that's well, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean that. I mean, yeah, just the the, the processes. I was talking uh, with uh, with the, this Dr. Graham the other day about this about. It all feels like we are like a computational machine, like a computational machine, the way everything works with the proteins and everything. And, you know, it's hard not to look at ourselves like computational devices in a way. What do you think? Yeah. So we don't know. We don't know much. Again, illusion of knowledge. We we know so little about uh, everything. So anyway. Dimensions. Okay, well, uh, Piero, this has been so fast, like always with you. I mean, conversations with you <laughs> go at the speed of light because there are too many interesting things. We have to connect again, uh, if you feel like, uh, and continue this fascinating conversation. Thank you yeah. so very much, Piero. Thank you. Thank you. Have a, have a nice day up there, wherever you are. I will send you a postcard from Mars. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for following the Beyond podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube and support it in other channels like Patreon and others. And hope to see you soon at the Beyond podcast. Thank you.